you have your Bibles this morning, which of course we hope you do, would you open them up to James chapter 3? James chapter 3, we're going to continue what we've been looking at over the past two Sundays, James' personal address to the teachers. We're going to look at verse 13 this morning. I think you're going to find there's a lot in there that we could talk about. So this morning, James chapter 3, and the title of the sermon is, So You Want to Be a Teacher. And we want to talk about what is James saying? You see, he wants people in the churches to mature. In other words, James wants churches to mature. And he wants them to become strong. And this was being threatened. Now listen, because this is really important you understand this. This was being threatened from both within the church as well as from outside of the church. From outside of the church because of the persecution from fellow Jews. So if you were a Jew in the first century and you put your life at the feet of Jesus and began putting your hope in Christ, then those who were still mired in Judaism would reject you, and there would be a lot of persecution, even sometimes your own family. Also in the first century, in that uh, culture, if you were a Christian, there became an incredible persecution upon you, even from those who were in Rome, and so you could not even get jobs. And Hebrew says that some even had their homes taken away from them. Can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine your home being ripped away from you because of your faith? It's a lot of persecution coming down on this church. But not only from outside, there was persecution coming from within. There was pressure coming from within. James is all about pressure, and pressure begins to reveal cracks in our faith. Because many people were climbing into the positions of teachers and leaders in the church, and their motives were not godly, and their faith was not alive with redemptive power. So James has written this book five chapters long, to deal with these issues that were happening in the early church. And his goal was that the churches would move towards maturity. You may have noticed the number of times in this book, I've commented a couple times, especially in chapter 3, which I did not comment on, that he uses the phrase, my brothers. Now, I want you to just slow down for just a second and, and pause and think about this. When James says, my brothers, or my dear brothers, He's bringing in an affectionate title to people because he knows the weight of his words in their lives. He knows that his words have been hard to hear and he's been speaking in a kinder way. He's speaking in a more loving way, my dear brothers. You know, three of my children now have encountered many splinters in their lives. And periodically, when they get a splinter and you don't get that out quick and quickly enough, the splinter could create an infection. And whenever that occurs, eventually you have to go in and you have to get that, that, uh, that splinter. Matthew's talking to Daniel right now because he had the world's longest splinter in his foot. It was awesome. Well, <laughs> it was exciting, you know, because he trusted me enough to let me do it. It was, it was not very fun for him. But James is digging out what's causing this infection in the early church, and that hurts. It's not easy. Now listen, if we had false teachers in our church, if we had people in our church rising up and trying to lead people astray and create a schism and a division in the church, let me tell you, your elders and your pastors would be addressing this, and it would be painful. We've had to administer church discipline. 
And it's always painful to administer church discipline, but the end result, thank God, has been redemptive. We've been able to restore both of those individuals. It's been beautiful. So James is digging out this infection, and he's teaching that that the early church had a system, actually they had no system, for people to be able to get into a position of a teacher. Now I want you to think about this for a second. If you wanted to have power, and if you wanted to have influence, you wanted to have respectability, you wanted to have authority in your life, the fastest way that you could get that in the early church was to become a teacher. And there was virtually no requirement for those who wanted to be a teacher. They didn't have what we have today. Ordination and licensing and and uh, uh, scrutinizing ability to be able to become a teacher. To be a teacher, to be a leader, was to be in a position of influence in this explosive thing called this church. And some of them, some of these teachers, now I'm setting up the context for you. I know I'm reviewing But some of these teachers were coming up into these positions and they had wrong motives. They had misguided affections and they were teaching what was destructive potentially to the church. And while people were coming to them to hear life giving words, what they were hearing from these false teachers was not the words of the spirit. They were hearing words of the flesh. And what we saw last week is that this teaching was originating, and this is the hard part to hear, but from hell. It's what the text says. Listen, if you come here every week, and that blows my mind why anybody would come here every week to hear me preach. It really does. I mean that. I don't know why you would do that, but I thank you that you do that. But if you come here every week, now listen, and nothing changes in your life No transformation occurs. Friends, listen, there's either a problem with my preaching or there's a problem with your heart. Because transformation is the goal. If you're coming here, I hope you're coming here to hear the word of God. Because it's only the word of God that's going to change your heart. And I hope you all want transformed hearts. See, this is what James is dealing with, these unnatural teachers rising up in the church and they're leading people to divide And so he writes to the churches to help them discern these teachers and these leaders whom God has raised up. And look what he says in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? You know, the most difficult part of interpreting that first part of 13 is to try to figure out who is the who. Who is wise and understanding among you? It seems clear that James is addressing, listen, primarily... Those who have claimed to have wisdom, godly and false teachers, those who have risen up in the church and said, I have wisdom. But he's also speaking to those within these churches who are following the teaching of these people and are being captivated. Now, listen, there's a lot of people I hear about this all the time. I know this is true. There's a lot of people that sit in the pews that are pretty much experts of how to teach and preach. And that's okay. You have, you have opinions. God gives you sometimes some very excellent things for me to hear. But that whispery temptation to be able to get into the position of pastor and teacher comes to a lot of people. 
And James is writing and he's saying, who is wise and understanding among you? He's giving the church some criteria. He's giving some church, the church some discernment to know if that person is in this position because God has gifted and enabled them to teach and to have influence over his church. Friends, listen, this is a challenge from James, but it's a good challenge. You know why it's a good challenge? Number one, it helps guard the flock. But listen, secondly... If God has given you the ability to teach, if God has given you the gifts of teaching and encouragement and exhortation, friends, you ought to be using that gift in the church. How do you know if you should be teaching? Remember what I told you, there's no formal clergy. In order for me to be ordained, I had to go through a licensing process. I had to write a 32-page doctrinal paper on what I believed. I had to submit that to the Eastern District Association, which they then gave to the Evangelical Free Church of America up in Minnesota. When they said that that was approved, I had to appear before my fellow pastors all over the district, and I had to define my beliefs. And they could ask me questions and they could give me points and counterpoints. And what came out of that was a refinement process where they spoke back to me and said, Tim, you need to improve, you need to strengthen, you need to get better in these areas. Three years later, after correcting my paper, I resubmitted it and now it's ordination. Before it was defining your beliefs in the EFCA, ordination is about defending your beliefs. It's a lot more rigorous. Same group of pastors, and now the kid gloves are off, and they're really there ready to test and ready to challenge and make sure you know what you believe. You should be excited because Tim Van Summer's about to start that process. I can't wait. <laughs> Love it. But it's an awesome process, and what it does is the gatekeeper for the evangelical free churches. They don't want people in the ministry that ought not to be in the ministry, that aren't qualified to be in the ministry, that haven't been called by God to the ministry. It's a, it's a man-made process, but it's a pretty good one. James is teaching us biblically. Now listen, biblically, how do you know if you've been called to teach? Who is wise and understanding among you? Let me give you three things he says. Number one, he gives the call for teachers in the church. He gives the call for teachers in the church. He says, again, who is wise and understanding among you? These words, wise and understanding, they have distinctions. They don't mean the same thing. Wise is a word that every one of you have heard. Every one of you have a working definition for the word wise. Whether you've ever thought about it or not, you hear it all the time. And typically, when you think of the word wise, you think of a person who has gained knowledge through life's experiences. You think of a person that has studied and shown himself approved, and now he's a wise individual. So does it mean that someone who seems to always have knowledgeable counsel when life gets confusing, is that what it means to be wise? Or, or does it describe someone who has discernment and judgment as to what is right and true? Is this what wisdom means? Well, wisdom has typically and wrongfully been equated with knowledge, but it's not the whole meaning of the word. Here's what wise means in the scriptures. A wise person is not someone who has superior knowledge. 
Uh, I can't tell you the amen that I've been giving to myself for that one, but rather someone who lives out the knowledge of God in righteous living. Listen, to be wise is to live out biblical faith and God pleasing deeds. Friends, listen, there are people here that are far wiser than I am. They've got the knowledge of God and it's living it out in righteous living. That's what it means to be wise. You see, it's the word that God gives for what he does. See, God has a problem in the church. Oh, God has a problem. That's heresy. Here's the problem. The church is filled with double-minded believers. A double-minded believer is a believer that, that loves God in church, but lives for the world the rest of the time. A double-minded believer is someone who knows the truths of God, but doesn't live them out in their lives. That's what it means to be double-minded. James wrote this book to make double-minded believers like you and I are sometimes into single-minded believers that when we believe God, we live it out in our lives. Friends, wisdom is the gift from God to move double-minded people into single-minded living. James has been talking about the tongue. He means both the tongue is our conduit from our hearts through our speech. And as more primarily, when James uses tongue in chapter 3, he's talking about the body of teachers in the church who are the verbal tools of God's messages. So where does right speaking come from? The Bible's answer is wisdom. To become wise then is not just to possess a storehouse of accumulated knowledge. It is to become one who lives out that storehouse of knowledge and righteous deeds. So that faith without deeds is dead and deeds without faith is unredemptive. James is moving faith to be combined with deeds. But that's wisdom. Here's what it means. That's what it means to be wise. But here's what it means to be understanding. By the way, understanding occurs in the New Testament one time, and it's here in James chapter 3, verse 13. Understanding carries the idea of specialized knowledge or intellectual perception. In other words, this term in the Greek is what we have emerged to be the word scientist. You see, understanding is when Paul, you study the word of God and you diligently mine the deeper things of God and God has given you because of that an understanding. Or Tom, you may have had a world of life experiences that have brought you into a desire to know God more deeply through his word. So you study it and you meditate on it and God is giving you understanding because it's become your expertise. Here's what James is saying is that wisdom when combined with knowledge, produces what is right for the church. But skilled expertise professionals who have not wisdom can arise to lead the church astray. Who is wise and understanding among you? That's the call for teachers in the church. Number two, the conduct for teachers in the church. Read that again with me, would you please? Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life. Friends, would you look up here for a minute? The best method of teaching, bar none, is always show and tell. It is the way that Jesus taught. Let those who are teaching, who are, who are aspiring to teach in the church, 
demonstrate their wisdom and their understanding by the way that they live. Do you remember me telling you that James in the Greek in this little five chapter book uses 52 Greek imperatives? Those are cracks of the whip. Those are military terms. They are used in the military to shout orders. 52 times. And this is one of them. Let him show it by his good life. It's a loving crack of the whip. Start living out your wisdom, teachers, is what James is saying. It's not enough to know a lot of scripture. It's not enough to memorize a lot of verses. It's not enough to be an eloquent speaker. It must produce, it must demonstrate itself, it must be observable in good living. Now listen, I told you last week that the, the spotlight is most on me. This is not fun to preach. But there's a lot of people teaching in our church. And this is what James is saying to me. He's what, this is what James is saying to you. This is what James is saying to all who want to aspire to be teachers and leaders in the church. Live out your wisdom. Now, periodically, this time of the year, the nomination committee gets flooded with names of men who are recommended for board positions, deacons and elders. Our nomination committee just met recently, and here is one of the first, and it's always the standard question that we ask. You ready? Here it is. Is this individual currently serving in our church? Because you know what? We don't want any name being submitted and rising to the title of a deacon or an elder if they're not serving anywhere in the church currently. There's nothing about a title that makes a man faithful to his church. If they're not faithful yet, they're not serving yet, they're not going to be considered for that position. This is what James is saying, is that we have to have wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Then let him show it by his good life. Show and tell. Now, James means two things, at least, by the phrase good life. Let me tell you what they are. Number one, life that lives out wisdom. A good life is a life that lives out wisdom. Those who teach must have an exemplary lifestyle. Those who teach must let people see their lives. Those who teach need to invite people, not wall them off, not remain privatistic. They need to let their good life be seen. Paul, in the writer of Hebrews, speaks about this. Paul urged the believers in Ephesus to live a, listen, to live a life worthy of the calling. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you so that, listen, your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Let people see the good life. Who is wise and understanding among you? They live lifestyles that are exemplary. They, they move people to Christ. 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Hebrews 13.7, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider, listen, I don't like hearing this, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Friends, listen, write it down if it's not in your outline, please. Wisdom is shown by what we do, not by what we say. 
There's another thing, though, that James means by the phrase a good life. It's a second thing. It's a life lived in a way that is good. It's a life lived in a way that's good. But what's that word good mean? It means beautiful. It means excellent. And here, listen, it means a life that is well suited for its goals. A good life is a life that God can move through to be able to accomplish his redemptive purposes. That's what a good life is. If you and I want to live a good life, then we're going to live a life that God is saying, this is what I want to do through you. This is what my purpose is for your life is. I'm able to work through you. I'm able to accomplish my desires through your life. James issues a call for the teachers in the church. He issues a conduct for the teachers in church. And finally, James issues the criteria for teachers in the church. Do you remember earlier, and I'm gonna, y'all are gonna breathe a big sigh of relief here, I think. James wrote in James chapter 3, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man able to keep his whole body in check. You remember that, right? And you remember that the criteria for teaching in the church is not one of perfection because Believe me, I'd be the first one off the pulpit. It's not one of perfection. It's one of humility. Here's what he says. Who is wise and understanding among you, verse 13, let him show it by his good life. Listen, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Listen, wisdom. Remember that that movement that God gives to move us from double-minded to single-minded so that we live out our knowledge of God. That's wisdom. Wisdom produces humility. I have to tell you, this is probably my number one struggle. Please don't nod your head, honey. This is my number one struggle. Teachers are susceptible in an extreme way to the temptation of arrogance. We can get to the point where unconsciously we say, as Shakespeare had it in The Merchant of Venice, I am Sir Oracle, uh, and when I open my mouth, let no dog bark. That's what we could get to as teachers. I got to tell you, years, years ago when I was doing a lot of preaching in this church, I got to the point where I knew, because I had read enough to know this, I, I knew this because people had told me to watch out for this pitfall, but people were coming up after the sermons and they were saying, Pastor Tim, we really appreciate your teaching. I had a lady come up and say, listen, if you ever start your own church a little ways away, let me know, I'm going to come join your church. All of this stuff coming into my mind. And I knew and I even prayed, I said, Lord, don't let me be arrogant. Because if this makes me arrogant, I've killed the ministry, the good life that you want to produce through me. And you know what? I went home one night in the midst of this six-week span of constant preaching. And Denise and I were getting ready to turn the light out. And as we often do, we were talking a little bit before we turn the light out. And she's going down through many people in our church and in uh, ways that are, are filled with concern and care for them. And every time she mentioned somebody from our church, I had a critical comment about those, that person. And finally, she looked at me and she said, you've really gotten arrogant. And I said, no, no, I haven't. You know what? I went to sleep. The very first thought 
Upon awakening was her voice. You've gotten arrogant. I said, no, I haven't in my mind. I went to the office. I went to study and I couldn't even study because I kept hearing this voice. You've gotten arrogant. I went to prayer. I said, Lord, would you correct my wife? She can't see this truly. (laughs) And he kept saying, no, I think I spoke through your wife. You've gotten arrogant. And for 45 minutes, I got on my knees and I said, Lord, how did this happen? I knew the dangers. I knew the pitfalls, and yet it still happened to me because teachers are susceptible to the temptation of arrogance. Friends, listen, it is very difficult to be a leader and a teacher in the church and to remain humble, but it is absolutely necessary. Let me give you two reasons. Teachers, listen, please. Those of you who want to teach in the church, listen. Let me give you two reasons why we are so susceptible to arrogance. Number one, we study And we acquire knowledge and we accumulate information. And when I prepare these sermons every single week, I have to study the word of God and it takes many, many hours. There's some pastors that can sit down on a Saturday evening and they can write their sermons. It takes me between 20 and 30 hours to write a sermon. It is hard work for me. But preachers of God's word, they don't sit in the lotus position and receive transcendental meditation from the spirit of God. They've got to toil and they've got to dig and they've got to learn. Now, here's the tendency, though. The tendency for teachers is to study and learn for other people's benefit rather than ourselves. You see, sometimes without even being aware of this, we're thinking when we're learning, how can I communicate this in the sermon? How can I communicate this to so-and-so? I hope they're there on Sunday. They really need to hear this. Or even less innocuously, how can I say this in such a way as it will be the most powerful and effective? Yet God is saying, Tim, I wrote this Bible because I want to speak to you this morning. I won't want to speak to you this evening or this afternoon because you've got things you need to change. But you keep deflecting it, thinking that I'm speaking to everybody else but you. This is what teachers do. And when I do this, a veil settles over my heart and my heart is left untouched. It's left untransformed because God's word needs to be personally received. And it can leave a teacher's heart blind in its own arrogance. There's another reason, though. And Peter Davids writes this in his commentary on James. He writes, no matter how extensive one's scriptural knowledge or how amazing one's memory, it is self-deception if that is all there is. True knowledge is the prelude to action, and it is the obedience to the word that counts in the end. This is just what Jesus said, John thirteen seventeen. Now that you know these things, you would be blessed if you do them. Friends, of all people, teachers tend to get distracted on the knowledge and not the results of knowledge, which is obedience. A love of learning, which several of you share with me, can be an obstacle to learning to love. Knowledge tends to puff up, Paul says, rather than to lead us toward humility. But humility, James tells us, flows from wisdom. But what is humility? To begin with, a better translation, and if Steve Shetlick were here or Rich Fires, they'd be loving me right now. The King James has it right. The NIV mistranslated. It's not humility, this word. It's meekness. And meekness is not weakness, it is power under control. You know where that word originated in the Greek? It came from 
horses that were wild and were broken and the weakness term was applied to them because now they're useful to their master. See, a wild horse has no use to its owner, but a horse that's broken and now its power is harnessed is now useful to its master. That's what meekness is, friends. The word, the word is powerful. You remember from James chapter 3 when he says, when you, when you put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we could turn the whole animal. Verses 7 and 8, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. Remember I told you that there is grace available because God gives meekness. It's a fruit of the Spirit, and meekness breaks our hearts and harnesses what we have for Him. But teachers who are puffed up with knowledge are untamable because they need to be broken. Their power, which is their influence and their authority, is not under God's control. It's under theirs. This is meekness, friends, and it's critical that pastors and teachers possess it. Now you know how to pray. You want to pray for your pastor? You want to pray for your teachers? You pray for meekness, which is power under control. Let me say one final thing about the meekness that comes from wisdom, and then I'm going to close. Now listen, to me this is one of the most important parts of this sermon. Meekness is a grace in the soul that God's Spirit produces. Friends, I can't go out of here and make myself meek. Because I don't even desire meekness until the Spirit of God gracefully touches my heart. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Meekness allows me to accept God's dealings with me as good and it allows me not to argue with him, to, to, to resist him, to dispute with him over what he really probably should have done in my life. And according to Aristotle, meekness stands between getting angry with God without reason and not getting angry at all. There's a middle ground called lament. And a meek man and a meek woman knows how to lament to God, pour out our suffering, pour out our trials to Father God without being angry with Him. In other words, friends, meekness is gentleness. And some of the wisest and some of the best teachers I have ever had in my life were gentle in their demeanor with their students. I could ask the dumbest question and they would calmly answer with love and grace. So friends, do you teach? Do you want to teach in the church? James has some words for you and I. Here's what he says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done, and the humility or the meekness that comes from wisdom. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are, in my mind, encouraging words. You've given us wisdom. You've given us discernment how to apply your truth, Lord, in living, even how to select and allow people to teach in the church. Lord, the position of teacher is not open to everybody. It's open to those who are wise and understanding and those who live a good life and have meekness. 
Father, I'll be the first to say I struggle with these things, but I thank you that you are cultivating them in my life. I thank you that you are cultivating these things in the lives of those who are teaching in the various ministries of our church. Father, we want to be a redemptive community, and a redemptive community is taught the word of God by teachers who are wise. Lord, help us in this. I pray that people would pray for their teachers, pray for their leaders, pray for their pastors. And Lord, enable us with your grace to be gentle. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.